Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of research life. I'm Jolie. I'm Georgia. And with us this week is Leonie Smith, a fourth year philosophy student here at the University of Manchester. Leonie, welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you here. So, uh, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be a PhD student here in Manchester? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I was actually doing my master's in philosophy in St Andrews um, and I was thinking of taking a year out before doing a PhD. But then somebody got in touch with me and said, do you realise Manchester has some funding, um, which is a tale as old as time. But uh, <laughs> so I said, no, I did not realise Manchester had some funding. Um, and then I actually went on the website and realised that there were some really quite impressive people here. So um, I'm working with two supervisors, Helen Beebe and Thomas Smith. Tom I'd met before and Helen is extremely well regarded um, in metaphysics of philosophy. Um, and the more I looked into things and realised they also had the Manchester Centre for Political Theory here as well, I thought, well, this is too good to to not apply for. So um, I, I wrote to them, said I've got an idea for something. Uh, I got great responses back. And I think by the next Monday, I had the money. So wow. that's how I came to be here. Yeah. So one of the least traumatic funding experiences any PhD students ever had, probably. Yeah. Oh, what a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> I was incredibly fortunate. Right place, right time. Yeah. Could you tell us a, a bit about what you're actually working on? Yeah, so um, I'm a philosopher and I work on, well, I hesitate to say it because people think what the, on earth is that, but um, I work on something called epistemic injustice. And so epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do we come to know things and what is it to know things, all that kind of stuff. Injustice is what you might expect. And epistemic injustice is when we are not treated fairly or ethically as people who have knowledge, who should be allowed to share knowledge or participate in the exchange of knowledge. So the classic example would be if you've ever been the only woman in a room full of men and you suggest an idea and without meaning to, people don't really hear you say it, then the guy next to you says it and they all go, oh, that's a really great idea. Um, and they completely don't manage to hear that you've just said that thing. So what it usually is, is something where it's not conscious. People aren't intentionally saying, well, you're a woman, I'm not going to listen to you. Or you're, you know, a black person, I'm not going to listen to you. It's background prejudice. And does this generally relate to the kind of specific forms of knowledge that we might actually form as members of those groups? So where disabled people aren't consulted on uh, disability Absolutely, issues? Absolutely, yeah. So it, it's really all kinds of knowledge. So you might be harmed in the sense of just not being able to participate in in knowledge spheres that matter to society full stop. Um, so in the workplace, in politics, uh, just in everyday interactions or with institutions. But in particular, certain groups face a lack of epistemic justice with regard to situated knowledge about their own situations. So mm. um, quite often, as you say, somebody who's disabled will have greater insight into what that means um, and what somebody who is disabled might need and so on. And they're not given the respect that they ought to be given. And, and as I said, the main thing about it is that usually it's not done consciously. So um, if somebody's just a horrible person and they say, well, you're, you know, um, a working class person from the north, I'm not going to listen to you because I'm posh, then they're clearly just prejudiced. But usually what happens is it's behind the scenes. So the, the literature on epistemic injustice is really interesting because what it 
advocates for or what it talks about is mostly about how dominant now is the people causing injustice can actually do something to rectify it. So making more virtuous institutional structures so knowledge can come out. So that might mean just having simple processes where you can contribute anonymously, things like that. Or by developing your own epistemic virtue. Um, and it's all very good and it's all very important, but I just have a bit of a concern with all of that literature because what it's doing is basically saying we've got to rely on dominant knowers to actually be better um, and I don't know about you but when I get home from a hard day at work the last thing I do is go home and think how can I be more epistemically virtuous today and and what can I do to improve how I treat other people epistemically so my own research looks at what I call epistemic self-defense, which is what can people who are marginalized do to actually change the receipt of their testimony, um, mm. to change their reception. It's a really interesting approach to the question because not only is it hard for us to sort of think, how can I be more uh, epistemically just. virtuous? Yeah. I was getting uh, Virtuous, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but also it puts the onus on people where there's very little motivation for them to well, do that. Yeah, it's just this bizarre idea, isn't it? And and so I'm I'm quite a charitable person about all of this. So I think you've got you've got the motivation problem. Like why on earth would somebody in power think, what can I do to, to do this kind of stuff? But I also think you know, we're saturated by media sources and, and our day to day lives and our own social bubbles. It's incredibly hard to work out when you're not being epistemically mm. virtuous. Um, I'm sure that I do it all the time. I'm sure that we all do it with our intersecting identities to various groups on a regular basis. And to me, it just seems like an incredibly implausible thought that people are going to do this. Some will, but not everyone. <laughs> it's also interesting because, I mean, I, th I come from, I sort of have a disabled background in, in one sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so you often think, I'm just not being noticed. I'm yeah. just not being seen. But then I notice, but then there are other areas where because in your day-to-day -day life you just don't see it, you don't experience it. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the simple example of um, my previous university had uh, installed ramps up to their uh, lecture theatres, mm -hmm. but then they had another set of steps on the inside and they hadn't thought, <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe they're actually I mean, going to so need to get funny, further than the foyer. Yeah. And it's that sort of simple leap yeah. that is so difficult to make. So how can groups self-defend how uh, you know i mean i think i was thinking of of twitter that's the, the mm -hmm. obvious example of being able to speak it, it when you're not granted official spaces such as the you so know, just the, reclaiming the space yeah just, yeah. just yeah. attempting to claim the space mm -hmm. are, are there any other ways that, that we can yeah. do this so so the thing about things like that so even on twitter or or facebook groups or, or the sources that we have got the thing about that is the problem when you try and defend yourself directly by just speaking the truth so when you try and just say something about what's happening is that because of the way epistemic injustice works something called testimonial injustice when you speak your words are automatically the credibility is downgraded so it's automatically filtered through this bubble so if you hear the sort of oh you know left-wing snowflakes or any of this kind of thing and, and none of us would use that kind of language uh, so obviously but there's a tendency to feel like well yeah but you're saying that because or you're thinking that because and at the, at the greater extremes it can even be interpreted as anger when it's you know aggressive or, or something like that when actually it's just speaking the truth so um the there's a great example of, um, I don't know if you've seen Hamilton, the musical. Well, you definitely should, because it's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I can't stop singing the songs. But if you, see, if you see Hamilton, the musical, there was a performance in America right after Donald Trump got inaugurated. 
and the vice president-elect, Mike Pence, was in the audience. And so at the end of the show, he was about to leave, and Brandon Dixon, one of the actors, on behalf of the cast, stood up and said, excuse me, sorry, could you, could you wait a minute? And he very politely said, you know, we want to address you on behalf of the American people who you work for and just say that we hope you will work for all of us. And it was an incredibly polite, you know, respectful address. And he was basically appealing to them and saying, a lot of people are scared right now and we hope you will work for us. Um, and, and Brandon Dixon is a, a black actor, most of the cast of Hamilton are. The next day, the tweets from Donald Trump were basically, Mike Pence, a good man, was harassed in the theatre last night. The theatre should be a safe space. And he was basically bullied and abused by this, this actor on a stage who was polite. So part of the problem is, in terms of defending yourself, speaking directly, doesn't cut it. So what I look at is, um, it's the stuff that, it's kind of the, the dark side of epistemology because we don't like to talk about it, but more manipulative techniques. Um, and so not, I don't think of manipulation as inherently bad, but it's this idea of how can you alter the way you speak or what you say or the words you put across to try and convince other people. And it's not to say this is what anyone should have to do, it shouldn't be a burden on you that you have to do this. But if you want to get your message across, and this is your only chance, sometimes it's what you're going to try and do. So I have these concepts. One of them includes epistemic nudging, which <laughs> is this idea. So if you ever heard of nudging, it's this idea that you kind of like nudge people towards what you want. And epistemic nudging is, is basically like that, where you try and get them to form the beliefs you want them to form, not the ones that they might form through prejudice. So you might control the information they're given if you have access to that, or you might use more overt sales type techniques like getting them to think the idea was theirs in the first place if you want them to do something um, so it's really I do I do sort of talk about it as the dark side of epistemology but I think it's morally permissible precisely because you're working in self-defense if that makes sense yeah, yeah totally I'm actually I'm so I'm really interested in the idea of philosophy research in the first place yeah and how it works. I assume that you don't just sit in a room and just think really hard. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dream. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit about like what have your methods been and how have you sort yeah. of developed an evidence base? No, it's good. So the the thing about philosophy is, if you don't know what philosophy is, you can get. Um, this idea that what it is is sitting in an armchair thinking what is the meaning of life and sort of trying to get it across and there are probably people who do that I'm sure there are people who do that and do it very well but the main thing about philosophy is our main method is is critical thinking and the application of logic really to to puzzles and problems so we make structured arguments with clear premises where the conclusion follows and we try and deal with objections and, and all that kind of thing to do that I people work in different ways but for me the the thing that tends to happen is I have an idea about something that I, I care about socially usually. Um, so for example the epistemic injustice stuff, I got interested in that because of what I perceive to be happening to people living in poverty in the UK right now, um, welfare claimants and the abuse they receive. So I'm very interested in that and I realise that they're kind of epistemically excluded and the way that media talks about them is absolutely disgusting. Um, so I got interested in that and started to think, well, what, what's causing that? What's happening? Then I started to look at the literature to see what people had to say about that, realised not so much on this group really in particular. Um, but then what I do to practice philosophy is I tend to try my ideas out with audiences. So I do a lot of conferences and talks um, and it has two purposes. One is that I get these amazing question and answer sessions where people will ask me questions that stump me and make me go back and think and have to work out 
well, how am I going to respond to that? But the other thing is it also lets me get my, my secret message out of we should be noticing this horrible stuff that's happening to people in our society. So that's my not-so-now-secret uh, mission when I do philosophy. But that's how I do it in terms of it's all about talking to people and hearing their questions. So the main method we have is analytical, but um, if you work on your own, you could spend months trying to think of answers, objections, and so on. You go to one conference, say something, and even just the process of saying it, you realise, oh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and somebody will point it out and you go, yeah, I got that now. Interesting, because that what you're describing there is an example of co-production of knowledge. Yeah, right. Like um, social and, epistemology. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and also nudging because it, in the sure. process of speaking, you're I'm asking them formable. to. Yeah. Yes, you're asking yeah. them to think about these groups and to think about what their experience is, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. so in a sense, you're talking to the more privileged groups who are able yes. to. Once once we're aware, then you can start thinking and acting differently yes and it's it's because it's not a conscious thing it's just that suddenly you're being given a different perspective and the filters so we call them like the hermeneutical frame on which you view the world has changed so i've had people come out of talks i've given being genuinely upset and saying i didn't realize how bad things were i didn't understand and and really changing how they view certain groups in society um it's not enough because obviously philosophers alone can't change the world. Um, But that's why the other strand of my work is very much this social knowledge bit that that you were just talking about, Georgia. And so the other side of what I work on is what can we do about what the media, the, the tabloid press, are actually saying and doing? Because they are so influential in producing what counts as knowledge in this society and it's done in such a pervasive way most of us i mean most people who even read like the sun or the daily mail don't go around saying scroungers in their day-to-day life but the language gets into your head and certainly the way of viewing people gets into your head if you look at headlines the daily mail how they talk about people on welfare they're very dehumanizing it's always the cases of of somebody that are perceiving to be a horrific fraudster or something and then when you look at YouGov data, polls about what people believe about welfare claimants, you find that they think that most welfare claimed is fraudulent. They think that most people, that they believe the myth that um, you should just get a job and all this kind of stuff. When actually we know for a fact that fraud, according to the Department of Work and Pensions own figures, is only somewhere between 0.7 and 2% of the entire amount claimed. And that's on the DWP's figures and they want to inflate it. It's not the 40% people think. And 55% of people live in poverty are in within working households so all of this stuff is just a myth and the media is playing a huge part in it because of the social production of knowledge um, so the other thing i look at is what are the limits of democratic free speech for the press because i think they've hugely abused that and the other issue of course is the fear on the part of the people who are in those situations that you can't speak out yeah because the moment you say something everyone is going to judge you you know that in the case of you know claimants on benefits if you speak out are you going to get reported Mm. are you going to face some kind of challenge oh you can't be disabled because obviously you're sitting here on you're talking about it you're writing about it you're saying something how you're obviously fine you can just go and get a job even if you're doing it say from your bed (laughs) absolutely so you have you have first that thing and then you have the situation that a lot of the interactions that matter for people who are claiming um, and I don't even like saying welfare survival funds because that's what it is a lot of these interactions are with state bodies so it's with Uh, the job centre, people like that. And they're not being believed 
can actually have these huge material repercussions where you basically lose everything. Um, and we have these awful stories of, of people, you know, taking um, extreme measures as a result of that or, or going into poverty, becoming homeless, their children living in terrible situations. And it's not just that. So the classic case of epistemic injustice are the things I said at the beginning where the woman in the boardroom who's overlooked or, or something like that. In these kinds of cases, it's much stronger. It's an exclusion altogether. They don't really want to hear what you have to say half the time. And it's not an individual level thing because you have perfectly nice people working in the job centre, uh, just like you do everywhere. It's an institutional structural approach, which means that you're not really seen as a full person that we want to hear from. And so I give an example of this, Workfare. I don't know if you know about Workfare, which was this awful policy, which has now been discontinued because very quietly um, the DWP's own research showed that it had absolutely no financial benefit whatsoever. But it was where in order to continue to receive your welfare, you basically had to volunteer. And I'm using quote marks for people on the radio um, you had to volunteer uh, full-time so basically instead of earning a wage you were earning your welfare you know uh, less than 100 pounds a week and am i right in thinking that that was benefiting profit-making institutions wasn't it you so initially it was initially like yeah and and, and they did yes yeah, so basically it was benefiting initially profit-making institutions then they sort of said oh it's just gonna be charities and things as if that made it okay so i have this example of a gentleman um called david and i won't use his full name here but i found him on linkedin and I found him because he was a connection of a connection because he'd always had jobs and so on but he found himself unemployed for a period of time such that he was put onto workfare and he wrote a blog before he went and he said okay I've heard a lot about this but I want to make the most of this this is supposed to get me back into work this is supposed to be good for me I'm going to go in with a really great attitude lots of questions and then he writes his blog the the day after or the day it's happened and he says okay I went in with a load of questions the kind of questions I'd hope someone would ask me in my former life as someone who used to run non-profits I got one question in I was labelled as having a bad attitude um, I was accused of raising my voice which was ironic because I was the only one in there who wasn't raising his voice and there's a good chance now I'll have my welfare stopped and and he did have his welfare stopped and what's happening there What well, I mean it's, it's horrific anyway but what's happening there is that it's not just that you're not being believed when you speak, it's that you're seen as someone who shouldn't be trying to speak. Mm. And I think this is a broader problem for people on, on disability welfare, on all forms of welfare in our society. We don't want to hear from them at the structural level. So, And uh, it is very difficult to, to talk about. Um, I have personal experience of having to go through that. I know what the assessments are like. Mm. And although they can be kind, you can be unlucky and have a bad day and have the experience of quite literally oh you claim to have attempted suicide you obviously weren't trying hard enough wow and that okay. leaves you so traumatized that yeah. you're like i don't even want to try doing this yeah and the idea of then stepping out and saying afterwards this is quite difficult to actually talk about openly even yeah. now is to say that's so hard I don't even want to talk about it I don't want to discuss it with Absolutely. people yeah. I would do anything to avoid being in mm -hmm. that situation again mm -hmm. even if I had to face crippling poverty yes 
and this happens. And so this is what Christy Dotson, the philosopher, calls um, testimonial smothering and, and silencing. So it's basically you go through this process of silencing yourself because the pain you will go through is just not worth it. So then you have this double bind situation where um, to start with, you have these horrible experiences or you, you feel like your testimony won't be received well. And then even if you do have these epistemically virtuous knowers out there who would love to take you seriously and so on, they're not going to get that chance because there's no way you're going to put yourself through the experience of what's going to happen if you try and speak. And this is this is the pervasiveness of these forms of epistemic injustice. And so um, the, the, the long-term solutions are absolutely, we need to change the structures, we need to change it so people are not treated this way, we need to reform the media, in my opinion, that's one of the things I'm working on. Um, we need to do these kinds of things, but in the meantime, it's how do you help somebody who's in that position? Um, how do you teach them techniques or tips to try and influence the person that they're speaking with to at least try and get their welfare? And it's very hard as well because a lot of people who go through these self-assessments, well, you don't go into it wanting to defraud anyone. This is the point. So you go in wanting to tell the truth. But the more you tell the truth, the more you try and show that you, you do. They say, can you walk over here? So you try and walk as far as you can. And then they use that to say, well, they walked that far. They could clearly walk 10 times as far. And, and, and it's because people don't want to deceive and don't want to lie um, and so on. And I think actually we're in a position where it is a case of self-defense. And epistemically, we need to think about how we're getting our messages across. So how would you, or anything that you would suggest, I know many of our listeners, are, you know, they're horrified, they are politically aware, yeah. and they would like to do something. But obviously, you know, we're all doing PhDs, we're also exhausted <laughs> and tired and, and have our own stresses and issues mm -hmm. going on right now. Is there anything small you think that, that someone could do if they, you know, they feel motivated and go, this is horrifying, what what can I do? What difference can I make? So, so in a, in a very practical level, the Justice Hub here, you can volunteer and, and, and talk to them and see if there's anything you can do to help them. So I know they've got a quiz coming up as well and, you know, certainly get involved with anything to do with that. I can't remember any of the details, sorry. So that they do, they do good work helping people. There are... Um, there are fight back groups online on Facebook as well. But from you, in terms of your day to day interactions, it's really about just having in mind um, whenever you're interacting with somebody who isn't obviously of the same type, class, or something like that as you, you know, actually, did I just dismiss them? You know, should I rethink that? And it's hard to do because it's kind of this practice. Now, Miranda Fricker talks about this and says if you do this often enough, you're going to develop a virtuous practice. You're going to consciously sort of upgrade people's testimony but it's very hard to do so more importantly I think what we should all be doing is looking out for things where we can help structurally so if you have the opportunity to be part of looking at how we assess students or job applicants and so on think about how can we anonymize data how can we do things so that my own prejudices which we all have you know we've all got implicit biases how can I eradicate those as much as possible how can I make it so that the process we're developing in this department eradicates that as much as possible how can I remove things where accent might be a barrier or, or something like that so it's really just about looking out for opportunities to to make the structural change that I think most of us have the best opportunity to change because I do try and be epistemically virtuous but I know I'm probably not half the time because I it's really hard to do and I and you don't even know when you've gone the right amount really you know when have I upgraded your testimony enough when you know so it's very hard to do so I think that anything where we can remove the potential for bias is a good thing to do and that would involve listening to groups you might not have thought to invite to your table so if you're setting up a conference if you're going through your usual 
Rolodex is an old-fashioned word, but if you're going through the usual list of names and you realise, God, I don't know anyone who's black or not white, um, who's in philosophy, for example, get on the internet, start Googling, contact people, find people. This isn't tokenism. This means this is about there being lots of great people out there you've never met because you're in your own epistemic bubble. So it, it's things like that. And perhaps on a on a you know on a very simple level. There are more things coming out there. Um, to give the example of the the Netflix documentary, I mean, you're dealing with um, this. You know, you're dealing with disabled people in the UK. But there's a new Netflix documentary out called Living Undocumented, which is about the experiences right, of people yeah. who are living in the US and they can't. You know, one mm-hmm. one member of the family is being detained by ICE, and then they can't go and see them because if they go and see them they risk being detained themselves and you can't speak out yourself so yeah i mean i i took the time to watch that documentary and it's made me painfully aware of that experience i mean we were all aware you know if you're on twitter for even two minutes you should be aware that of what's going on in the world but to be more aware of those experiences and they're taking such a risk to do that yeah but even just paying attention for those minutes, do you, you know, I think you that's think- a great point. And actually, it's made me think of something else that I do very consciously, which is think about the media you consume. Um, so I very consciously for years now, it's very rare that I will choose to watch a show with a male lead. Um, I deliberately and intentionally watch shows with women leads. And I deliberately and intentionally now over the last few years um, watch shows where the, the leads are not white. <laughs> So just because this is what normalizes that the, that the people who are not like you are a full range of humanity, just as we are. So um, if you can broaden your choice in the media and be more consciously aware, you know, if I had people say to me, that's, that's ridiculous, if it's a good show, why wouldn't you watch it? It's like, because I'm well aware of how that filters into my subconscious, uh, that, that, you know, men are the heroes, when actually in my day-to-day life, women are the heroes. So uh, I want to see that represented. So you can do things like that as well. So one of the things that we like to ask all our guests, especially because this has been quite a serious (laughs) subject and we've covered quite a lot of very important issues. And I think it's really interesting to hear how, I'm sorry to fall into kind of a a cliche (laughs) trap, but you're doing philosophy, but it's going to actually have an impact on the world. And it's about, you know, real people's lives. And I can really see how that's how your sort of passion for a real world issue is translated into your sort of philosophical practice that aside do you have a sort of uh, like a funny or amusing story that you can share with us from your, the last four years of your PhD oh god yeah pr- I mean probably lots of things that have been genuinely funny and some more dark humour but um, <laughs> um, more directly funny I, I recently did a philosophy stand-up gig so um it, it, the bright club where you have academic researchers basically trying to be funny about their research um, i've and, never and, heard of this oh it's amazing like so you have to you have to get on this group because they do them every now and then periodically many of them are far funnier than me and and it was the first time i've ever done it so i signed up for this and and there ended up being three philosophers on the bill which has never happened before i think two of us in epistemology so um <laughs> So I ended up being the second half and I thought, how on earth do I get across this epistemic injustice stuff in a non-bleak, amusing way that's also relatable and so on, which is, you know, you can imagine quite hard. Um, And I ended up just like pretending to be a cat on stage and a dog on stage and another cat on stage and just like playing out this family drama amongst two cats and a dog where the dog wasn't being listened to. Um, So that was quite... (laughs) It was funny to do. I hope it was funny for the audience. They were laughing, maybe at me, I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) 
so that was quite funny in itself. But I've also had this experience where um, this poor guy asked me a question. I did this I did this talk, a conference. You know, sometimes it just goes really well when you feel like this audience is really receptive. They they really like this. This is this is landing. It's timed perfectly, and everyone loved it. The Q and A was wonderful. And this guy got the last question. And I felt really bad for him in the end because he put his hand up and he said, um. Like, I don't mean to be rude or anything, but how is this philosophy? <laughs> and it's the classic, one of these things that you sort of hear this myth of people asking when you do socially oriented work, like, how is this academic? How is this whatever? And everyone in the room just sort of swiveled to him and glared at him, this guy. And he was just sort of like, oh, God, I know I've done something wrong. And I was very nice. And I was just like, oh, well, you know, and I explained, you know, actually, you know, we can apply our critical lens to all these things. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and he took it very well. Um, and he did end up sending me a message a few days later, apologising because he was worried about how he'd taken it. So I don't know if that counts as funny, but yes, I, I felt bad for him. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you uh, you handled it quite well. I feel like conference questions are a, a classic source of those kind of like, is this funny or is this really bad experiences where someone yeah. asks you a question? I've, like, I've had much worse than that. I mean, I felt bad for him because I think he was just trying to say this isn't the normal thing. Yeah. Was, and it just came out as, how is this philosophy? Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it didn't work for him, the poor guy. Um, how can I exclude you from this? Uh, yeah, it did, it did sort of production. feel like, how can, I, yeah, how can I literally commit some form of epistemic injustice against somebody who's just told me why I should be paying attention to these social outgroups and people from the north of England like me. <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's right up there and what can you do with, for a living with that? Yeah, yeah, and how can you get money from this? Yeah, um, But yeah, the epistemic injustice in philosophy is, is rife uh, if we're not careful and uh, we're all potentially guilty of doing it. Yeah, I think to some extent maybe forgiving ourselves a little bit. I think that's it as well. This guy, I felt really bad for him actually because the whole room was just... You could see the whole glaring at him, like, how dare you? She's just talked about epistemic injustice and you're standing there accusing this of not being real philosophy. Uh, you know. um, but, yeah, if it happened to me in my first year, maybe I'd have felt differently. But in the end, he was, an, he was a decent guy. We've talked afterwards. So. Yeah, I yeah. think one of the most important things that I would take away from this, having sort of heard about your project, is that that sort of forgiving approach that you were talking about, that most people, I certainly generally believe that most people don't set out to be bad to absolutely be excluding, i do believe that yeah you know and that we all do live in our own frames and worlds that that shape how we interact with others yeah and that a lot of the sort of uh, negative behaviors that we're thinking about are things that are baked into you quite early on and you have to do a lot of work to unlearn so yeah. i'm quite in favor of you know believing the best about people hopefully helping them to towards your point of view without necessarily kind of being like you can't you know because as like a dominant knowledge yes. a dominant knower you can't actually contribute to this conversation i feel like in the middle of this self-defense position and the position you were talking about where it's all in the field in the in the, mm -hmm. the balls in the court of the dominant knowers there's this middle ground where everyone works together and that's what we that's exactly what we you would expect so social so we talk about social knowledge i think all, pretty much all knowledge is social i mean i don't know how i found out that the 
the earth is round or anything, but they certainly didn't. I couldn't trace back a lineage that says I worked everything out on my own. Everything is social. So so knowledge has to be produced socially. So it is about all working together in that space. Um, I'm interested in the people on the margins of that. What can you do? I'm also interested in changing the structures so that good, normal, ordinary people who just read newspapers and watch TV and have conversations with their friends can get access to good sources of information without it being a stretch. So they can actually be decent in knowledge production so they cannot commit epistemic injustice. And it's not to say there's a burden on marginalised knows to forgive or, or any of this kind of stuff. You're absolutely entitled to be as annoyed and angry and should be many times about this. Um, it's just about if you do yourself mess up. Um, no one's interested in you beating yourself up about this. What we want is we move forwards. So, yes, it's all about apology apologise and get over it and, and what and then can you do better yeah. yes yeah. yes if we spend all of our time thinking about our, okay. our white our, white, our so white guilt or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our, our able-bodied guilt or whatever you know that that doesn't help at all yeah it's that should be more it's, that's a tool mm. you know to recognize oh this is because of my privilege this is because of whatever and stuff like that but if that's what you're doing, if, if you don't go any further, then you're not actually helping anyone. And that, that's where it becomes a problem, I think. We, we have to think, yeah, how can we change the structures? And just accept, I don't have insight into other people's minds. I, I don't know what they know. I, I don't know what they deserve, you know, in terms of credibility all of the time. So maybe I should just work harder at making it easier for voices to be heard. Like this kind of radio shows. Yeah. <laughs> The oppressed PhD class. Yeah. <laughs> yes, as one of the least privileged groups. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's all intersectional. It, it, it does tell you that, that privilege is actually a really complicated so, yeah. problem. You yeah. know, you, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm so white and I'm British, but also disabled. And so there's yeah. so many different conflicting things yeah. in there. So in some cases, yeah. I, I have, I feel really Precarious lucky. workers, but yeah. also access yeah. to all this knowledge. So. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I think all that uh, remains to be said is, Leonie, thank you so much for being our guest. It's oh, been an welcome. absolutely fascinating episode for me. I've loved it, yeah. Jolie, thank you, as always, for being <laughs> uh, the host. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musical.